scripture reading comes from Mark 1, verses 16 through 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw the son, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. I'm excited uh, to go on a journey with you looking at what the early followers of Jesus uh, called, what we call Christianity, was called living in the way. And I'm excited to look over this over the next few weeks. Um, Recently, as of Monday, my wife and I started uh, a eating thing called the Whole30. Anybody heard of this? Okay, or maybe you've done like a keto or a paleo diet. Well, the Whole30 is really miserable because they just basically say you can't eat all the things that taste good. Um, and uh, I'm really bad at it. I, my wife is always good, and then I'm like, by day three, I'm like, oh, pizza. So I'm trying. I'm not perfect, but we're, we are attempting this. And I think part of uh, what makes these things work is we operate, all of us operate on a schedule or on a cycle, right? When the new year hits, it's time for new habits. It's time for uh, a resolution or a goal. And I think in the same way, when a new school year starts, we just dropped our oldest son off at kindergarten for the first time, which was crazy, exciting, emotional, all the things. And there's something about starting new, whether that's in August or January, Right? There's, there's something about our brains that they say, okay, I'm going to start, make new habits, do new things, and we have a vision for what that year might look like. What we're going to talk about this evening is the way of vision. The vision that, that God gives us, that Jesus spells out for us, and actually gives his earliest disciples. Don't think this is working, unfortunately. We're still working out the kinks here. So I may have somebody, okay, keep going. There we go. All right. Hopefully this will start working for me. Um, Vision, this idea, it doesn't matter what your vision is if it's pointed at the wrong thing. All of us have a vision for something. And Jesus calls us to a very specific vision. David Brooks writes in his book, The Road to Character, he says, you follow your desires wherever they take you, and you approve of yourself so long as you're not obviously hurting anyone else. You figure that if the people around you seem to like you, you must be good enough. In the process, you end up slowly turning yourself a little less impressive than you had originally hoped. A humiliating gap between, opens up between your actual self and your desired self. That last line resonates with me. I don't know if it resonates with you, The humiliating gap between who you want to be and who you are can sometimes feel big. I must confess, I feel that line. I want to be the guy who finishes the whole 30. I want to be the guy who has good habits, who never loses his patience, who has a good relationship with my cell phone and and I'm present with my wife and my kids. Those are the things I want for my life, the vision I want for my life. But sometimes that gap can feel big. One of my favorite quotes 
is the concept of misliving from a guy named William Irvine. He says this, there is a danger that you will mislive, that despite all of your activity, despite all the pleasant diversion you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you've squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various bobble life has to offer. I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to the end of my life and think, man, I've really mastered a lot of things that don't really matter. Misliving is the idea that we take our finite time that we have to experience life itself and we waste it on things that one day we look back and wish we hadn't. And this is why vision is so important. If we don't have a vision, if we don't know what it is that we are striving for, then we will mislive. And I've chosen this text to sort of launch this series because Jesus is giving a, a vision for people who are aching and are hungry for meaning. So Mark 1, chapter, Mark 1, 12 through 15, at once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness, that he is Jesus here. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. And after John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So whenever we talk about kingdoms, it's sort of a foreign idea for us to comprehend. Growing up in the United States, we live in a democracy. Okay, We can maybe sort of gather some understanding by our friends over in the UK right, who have a constitutional monarchy, but even in their case, the king and queen are more symbolic. They're more like celebrities than actual rulers. And so for us to understand it, we, we, we can't really put our minds to frame around it, but one of the ways I think is helpful is a, a way that uh, Dallas Willard sort of defines what kingdom means for us, and he uses the term effective will. Effective Will That our kingdom is simply the range of our effective will. What that means is whatever we genuinely have say over is in our kingdom. And our having say over something is precisely what places it within our kingdom. So hold on to that because we're going to come back to that. Okay, because Jesus pops on the scene after 400 years of silence. Okay, so the, the Jewish people are expecting a Messiah. They are waiting that this, for this Messiah to come, I'm sure many of them losing hope that one day this prophesied Messiah would be here. And here comes Jesus, and he says, he breaks into the scene, and he announces that the kingdom of God is here. And it's important to know that there are kingdoms in this time that are in conflict, okay? It wasn't a blank slate. It wasn't coming into the Garden of Eden, but there was already a war that is being waged, and the kingdom of God's announcement is actually waging war with the kingdom of Satan. And I know when we talk about Satan, it can be uncomfortable. Um, I know it's easier to sort of think about Satan as some kind of metaphor for evil, but the reality is, I think it's important that if we don't have a concept of a personal or personified evil, we'll lack the ability to truly explain the heartbreak that we see in the world. 
It's not just people having a bad day, but legitimate evil in the world. And that evil, according to the scriptures, is embodied in a person. And he exercises his will in his realm and brings death and destruction. And it is all defined by selfishness. And what the enemy wants is to be God. We see this in Luke 4. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. So the kingdom that Jesus is announcing is confronting this kingdom of Satan. Satan is tempting Jesus in this moment to move towards that selfish to have everything, and it is in direct conflict with the kingdom of God. You could even see the kingdom of Satan be related to this idea of a kingdom of self, selfish first. It was John Calvin that said, everyone flatters himself and carries a kingdom in his breast, right? We do this all the time. And almost everything that's wrong in the world, all the evil that we see in the world is due to selfishness. It's what leads to all kinds of societal problems, what leads to tyranny, it's what leads to genocide, countries that fall under oppression. It leads to uh, all kinds of places that exist now in our world where women are mistreated and subjugated. And, and reality is, it all boils down to people rising to power and due to selfishness, right? The kingdom of Satan. Because of that, that's where evil happens. But there's good news. The good news is that there is a kingdom of God that has come to confront this kingdom. We see this sort of on display in James, chapter 3, verse 14. He puts it like this. If you harbor any bitter envy or selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from the heaven, but is earthly he calls it unspiritual and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. Right? Envy, selfishness, directly tied to evil, demonic, unspiritual. And when an individual gains power and influence and they have an ability to exert their will and they use people for their own glory or are selfish or cruel, this is when evil kingdoms form. And so Jesus' announcement that he's coming to bring the kingdom of God is good news for a culture that is defined by the kingdom of self. Look what James continues to say in verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, the peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So we ache, right? As a people, we ache to be in a culture where the people in power who exert their, their uh, will are not unspiritual or demonic, but instead are people that are peace-loving, considerate, full of mercy, and sincere. And the announcement is that this good news, this kingdom of God is arriving. It's the reign and rule where God gets what he wants done in the world and invites us to participate in it. This is the good news. And the good news demands a response. Mark 1.15 says, The time has 
Come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The Greek word here for time is kairos. Okay, chronos time is another, another word that would describe a period of time, a week, a month, a minute, right? A calendar event. But chronos is a, or kairos is a different type of time. It's an appointed season. Um, it, it's not just a new event on the calendar, but a new season. A new season has come for the kingdom of God. I was trying to think of a metaphor to help explain kairos time, and I was talking with my brother Mike, and he had a metaphor, and I don't know if it's good or not, but... You know how like mullets are like back in trend right now? <laughs> Business in the front, party in the back. Well, Mike's like, Kairos time is kind of like a reverse mullet. You know, party in the front, business in the back, because you can see it, you can grab onto it, but once it's behind, you can't see it. Okay, it's a weird metaphor, but <laughs> I thought it was good. The reverse mullet. Um, here's the thing. The good news for us is because God's, uh, God is not dependent on current events or the current horizon or possibility. We don't need to wait until the world is good for God so, so God can break in, right? Uh, D.E. Garland's commentary says this really well. He said, Jesus makes his appearance when the time, because it's kairos, is fulfilled. Mark is not interested in telling us when precisely this occurred on the human calendar, the only thing that counts for him is the time seen from the divine side. When God steps into the stage of human history, it always comes as a surprise and as a scandal to those whose field of vision is limited only to finite human possibilities and whose time is measured by the tenure of transient human kings. In the midst of the present moment, one can easily forget that God bestrides time and history and works by a different clock. I love that last line. Tell me about your God. He bestrides time and history, and he works by a different clock. So the kingdom is available now to us, and it's called for us to recognize that and see the good news, the inbreaking of the news of God. It's not just another announcement, whether you can have an opinion about it. It's a fact and a reality, whether we believe it or not. The inbreaking, okay, this phrase, a word for it is uh, you catastrophe, okay? And we know in our culture right now, um, we see catastrophe after catastrophe, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's a, a, a tenuous election season, whether it was uh, what's going on in Afghanistan or in Haiti right now, or wh whatever we see, we see these things in front of our faces where catastrophe happens. J.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, he employed this storytelling device called a you catastrophe. A catastrophe is an unexpected evil, but Tolkien added the Greek prefix eu, which is eu, meaning good, to express an unexpected appearance of goodness. He defined it as the sudden happy turn in the story which pierces you with joy and brings you to tears. It has the effect on us because a sudden glimpse of truth in which we feel a sudden relief as a major limb out of joint has suddenly snapped back. I thought that was a beautiful me metaphor for what's happening when we talk about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And that is a call for all of us to repent. Now, repentance is not a word that I think translates well in our culture, especially to those who don't, 
aren't familiar with the Christian faith. Like when I think of repent, I think of a guy on a street corner. It says, repent, the world's ending in seven days or something crazy, right? It's like we don't really understand what this word, and oftentimes it's used to beat people down. And I think we've lost its meaning. Repentance is not just about behavior modification, but it is a total change of mind leading to a total change of life. So here's what this means. The announcement that Jesus makes, that God is breaking into the world. He's saying, stop what you're doing right now. Reorient your life to the kingdom, from the kingdom of self to this new way of life that is what has meaning and life and joy and where you will find all those things. It's not just about turning away from something, but it's about turning towards something. One of the best illustrations, um, because after we sort of look at this repentance piece, and we're going to come back to that, there's the second half of the announcement, which is to believe. In order to understand that, I'm going to read from uh, Dallas Willard. He, he probably has the best illustration of this I, that I could ever come up with. And he says this, as a child, I lived in the area of southern Missouri where electricity was available only in the form of lightning. We had more of that than we could use, but in my senior year of high school, the REA, which is the Rural Electrification Administration, extended its lines to the area where we lived, and the electrical power became available to households and farms. When those lines came to our farm, a very different way of living presented itself. Our relationships to the fundamental aspects of life, daylight and dark, hot, cold, clean and dirty, work and leisure, preparing food and preserving it, could then be vastly changed for the better. But we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangements, arrangements, understand them, and take the practical steps involved in relying on it. You may think the comparison rather crude, but in some respects, it might be. But it will help us to understand Jesus' basic message about the kingdom of heaven. If we pause to reflect on those farmers who, in effect, heard the message, repent, for electricity is at hand. Repent or turn from their kerosene lamps and lanterns, their ice boxes and cellars, the scrub boards and rug beaters, the woman-powered sewing machines and their radios with dry cell batteries. The power that can make their lives far better was right there near them where, by making relatively simple arrangements, they could utilize it. And strangely, a few did not accept it. They did not enter the kingdom of electricity. Some just did not want to change. I think this is a powerful metaphor for what we talk about when we talk about belief. Because belief is not merely a cognitive thing that we do, but it is something represented by how, in fact, we live. And I don't assume that everyone who's here tonight is a Christian, or perhaps maybe you grew up in the church, but your faith isn't really a priority for, for you right now. I don't assume that. And, and for those of you who have been walking uh, as Christians, I want all of us to be on the same page for a moment. I want to you to imagine for a second your entire life lived in darkness. Imagine not knowing what could happen if you turned on a light switch. And then one day you are given this gift of light and it was set up for you and you had to believe it and you had to simply flick a switch to turn on the light. Imagine what that would feel like. I would guess you would want to flicker the light on and off to see the magic of it happening over and over again. 
This is what happens to people when they discover the power of God for the first time, where they were dead in sin, but now alive, where there was guilt and shame and condemnation, but there is now freedom. And over time, what happens? You get used to the experience and the ease of having light. In the beginning, there was excitement. Their whole world had changed. And the reality is this, the kingdom is available for us in the same way. A good king is humble and full of mercy, and he says, turn from the darkness, turn from the old ways, turn from the sadness, from the meaninglessness, because the kingdom of God is available. And all you have to do in that moment is respond. So we turn to our text, Mark 1, 16 through 20. As Jesus walked behind the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. So at once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and hired with the hired men and followed him. I want to point out here, that in this moment, Jesus' invitation was both relational and personal. He says, follow me. Let me teach you. Whereas back in the day, by any means, Jesus would have been considered what we call a rabbi, right? A rabbi was a teacher of the law. And during that time, often when people would follow a rabbi, it would not be, hey, come follow me. It's, hey, no, come learn my interpretation of the Torah. Come memorize the Torah. Come to this legalistic system, religious system, with a distant deity, and Jesus says, no, come follow me. And then he gives them a commission. He says, I will make you fishers of men. And when you choose to follow Jesus, the beauty is is that it is always more. If you think about these fishermen, bound by the margins of Galilee, likely have never seen anything outside of their town, maybe with exception to a trip to Jerusalem for a religious holiday. But the reality is they know very little besides the the, uh, deck of their boat, right? That's their life experience. And yet they say yes to this invitation and their lives are transformed. John went from the seas of Galilee to become the bishop of Ephesus. Peter went on to become the bishop of Rome. Andrew went as far as the border of Russia, and all of them became teachers and pastors and strategists, all because Jesus said, follow me, and they were obedient and said, yes. Charles Spurgeon says, when Christ calls us by his grace, we ought not only remember what we are, but we, also, or we ought also think of what he can make us. One would have said, how can these things be? You cannot make founder of churches out of peasants of Galilee. It is because of what he can make us, what he can do in your life, what he can make out of you. And that's why when we hear this invitation, it is not about getting our life to a place to where we are ready to say yes. It is simply saying, wherever you're at, I'm willing to respond to the invitation. The kingdom is advancing and you're required to make a decision. These were ordinary fishermen. They were ordinary people who were called to live in the kingdom and join him on the mission. 
So one of the things we're really passionate about uh, for these Thursday services is we don't want simply this to be a time where we get together, we sing a few songs, we preach a sermon, and then it's all contained within one night. We really believe that faith should be lived out every single moment of our life. We don't compartmentalize the spiritual and the unspiritual, but every single part of our life is about what it means to walk with Jesus. So in order to connect uh, Thursdays this week with the rest of the week, I have a little diagram, if you'd put that on the screen for me. Uh, this is called, uh, the, I'm called the Kairos, Kairos Moment Diagram. And our practical uh, application this week is for us to both do this, or at least attempt to do it, and maybe even to share it with someone else. If you take notes, you can draw this, or I'm giving you permission right now. If you want to take a picture of the screen, go for it. I won't judge you. Um, I will also post this same picture on our Eastminster's Instagram and Facebook so you can see it and grab it there as well. But I want to explain what this means. This is a learning circle about what it means to engage in discipleship. The Kairos moment is the moment, right, that, that pregnant moment in time where you have to respond, you have to act, you have to seize that moment. If there's hair in front of your face, you grab it, reverse mullet. Um, I actually gave a, be- a more con- better definition for Kairos moment here. On a practical level, a Kairos moment is that moment where you stop worrying about what's happening in time because something else profoundly significant is happening. So if we listen we become and become hyper aware of these kairos moments where God is speaking or moving. And I'll tell you from experience, you get better at this with time. Seeing those moments in our day-to-day life. You can go back to that diagram real quick. So first, step one, we can see the kairos moment. We see it in our midst. Something profound is happening. God is speaking. God is moving. First thing we do is we observe. We observe these moments to try to get perspective. What is going on? What is God saying? Uh, Wow, that was painful. What is God trying to teach me in the midst of that? Number two, we reflect. We sit with and we think about it. We reflect on what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us. We pray the prayer, Holy Spirit, what are you trying to say to me here? Where is the kingdom in this amidst all the confusion? And next, we discover what God is doing here. We lean in and we figure out what God might be doing. And once we gain understanding, we let go of our old ways of thinking and we began thinking and behaving to discover the heart of God and his purpose. This is that idea of repentance. When we discover what it is that God is doing. So we lean into that. Now here's what happens. Um, On that right circle, what often happens is we will observe, reflect, discover, and then that will be the end. We live in a Western culture that is very individualistic. Our faith is a personal faith, right? We have a personal relationship with Jesus. We have quiet time, personal quiet times. We, we sort of think about things in a personal and isolation, isolated way. But the reality is the Christian faith cannot be lived alone. It's meant to be lived in community, doing life with one another. So when we cross over to the next section, we begin to come up with a plan. And in this, um, 
we kind of think about how then do we obey Jesus in the immediate moment, but also what in my life needs to change in order for this to happen. And this is done best in community. And that's where the challenge and the support comes in. We don't do this very well. But the best practice is that when we have a plan for what's going to happen next, we have people speak into that. Asking questions like, what is God doing in your life right now? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? How can I hold you accountable? And I'll, I'll just say this. If you are living life right now with, without having that kind of community, like you're like, this is great, Matt, but I don't have people in my life who can do that. I want to encourage you to get plugged into a small group community. We are launching our grow groups. I mentioned that briefly. Um, if you are a young adult, we have a group that's going to be meeting each week. We'd love to get you connected. If you're a college student, we'll have groups that are going to be meeting. If you are whatever stage of life you are in, we want you to be doing life with other Christians. That is the heartbeat of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that we do it not in isolation, but together. So then what? We move to accountability. We share the moment, the plan, with two or three people. Two or three people in our life. We don't keep it to ourselves, but we say, hey, this is what God did, and here's how I feel like I need to respond in the future. Right? So we take these moments and we act on them, and this is the process of discipleship, where finally we act on what it is that God is calling us to do. Now, there's a lot of talk in the evangelical world about being gospel-centered, and I think the heart behind that is really good, but oftentimes when I hear people talking about gospel-centered and, and this idea of gospel, oftentimes it's described something to me that's not really good news. It feels more like the Old Testament death cycle, right, where the Israelites would uh, turn to idolatry, turn to things that were uh, unlike God, and all of a sudden, God would leave the Israelites to their own devices and ultimately to ruin. And then he would restore them, and there was sort of this cycle over and over again. And for many of us, and many oftentimes, when we think gospel, it doesn't become something that is good news. It, because it becomes, you're bad, you failed, there's forgiveness, start again. You're bad, you failed, there's forgiveness, start again. Hear me. The gospel provides forgiveness and freedom, but it's even more than that. It's more. It's allowing God to rule and reign in our hearts. And when we enter into and we lean into living in the kingdom, it requires not just a passive growth. It requires an active and intentional movement towards God. So instead of asking the question, how can I be better? Perhaps we reframe the question, where is God moving and how do I join him? What is God doing in this moment? Where is he in the midst of this pain? Where is he in the midst of this person that I encountered who was rude to me? Where is he in this person who is desperate for meaning and hope? Where is God in my loneliness? Where is God in my fear and my doubts? We ask these questions. We press in and we listen. You have no idea the joy that could be behind one of those Kairos moments. So that's my encouragement to you, that you would listen. Be hyper aware of how God might be moving. In closing, I was on uh, Instagram or Facebook, I don't remember which one, but I, I was getting influenced to purchase something called a master class. You guys see these? Right? It's like, watch Stephen Curry teach you how to be good at basketball, and uh, Gordon Ramsay will teach you how to cook. 
Uh, Aaron Sorkin will teach you how to write a screenplay. And they take all these incredible people. And the one that caught my attention was Aaron Franklin will teach you how to smoke some meat, which I love barbecue, right? That drew me right in. Uh, the just brisket just dripping in juice. I'm like, I want to do that. I want to make that. So I click the link, right? I'm being influenced. And then I see, okay, it's $90 for the class or $180 for a year's worth of all the classes, right? So now it's really got me sucked in. And uh, I actually think, I, I was in the midst of preparing for this sermon all week. I've been reading um, and thinking about it, trying to listen for Kairos moments. And I actually sensed God speak to me in the moment. And I sensed God say to me that, Matt, if you want, I can teach you how to live. I can teach you a better master class on how to live in the way I have called you to live. I don't think this was the Holy Spirit, but I also sensed uh, I'd be in big trouble if my wife saw $180 just pop up on her bank account. So I decided not to buy the master class, but um, that's just an example of moments where we are listening in to when God is speaking, even into the most mundane and simple things. I'll close with this quote by Dallas Willard. He says, the really good news for humanity is that Jesus is now taking students in the master class of life. You want to learn to live in freedom and in joy. You want your sins to be forgiven. You want to be part of a cause that will transcend any human success that you could ever achieve. If you want your life to have meaning, enroll in the master class that Jesus is teaching. Because the kingdom of God is coming. Repent and believe and follow and learn from me. My encouragement to you is to say yes to this invitation. Wherever you're at, whether you're cycling towards God or you're cycling away from him, whatever season of, of your faith, whether you've been far from God or whether you've been near, God is inviting you to say yes to this journey. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, I pray in the coming weeks as we practice what we believe, as we put these things into motion, that we would be extra aware of times in which we are moving. And that in those moments, we would not just observe that, but we would then act on it and that we would connect in community and we would take that a step further in which you continually deform us in the midst of it. Father, it is our desire that we would join you in the kingdom, in breaking into the world. And we're grateful that you're not a distant deity that did set up the world and walked away, but instead you broke in through the incarnation of your son, Jesus putting on skin and moving into the world, living a perfect life, dying on a cross, rising again. Jesus, we thank you for all that you are. It is our prayer that we would say yes to that invitation. It's in Jesus' name.